This is the Skin Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Thomas Hitchcock, and here we'll investigate everything skin science and dissect it from a scientific perspective, analyze it from a medical perspective, critique it from a consumer perspective, and give insight from an industry perspective. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, in the studio today, we have Dr. Brian Jones here. Hello, everybody. All right. We also have in the peanut gallery uh, all of our usuals. We have Alan Setti, uh, Dr. Maldonado, and a newcomer, we have Endashe Kumungo. Kumungu. Correct? Okay. Yes, she's, she's uh, brand new to our company, and she's actually uh, joined us as a medical affairs specialist. And our special guest of honor is a Mr. Jeff Bedard, and I'm going to read a little intro from him and then let him uh, uh, introduce himself as well. So Jeff is Crown Laboratories president and CEO, so he is my boss, so everybody be nice to him. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of Iowa with a degree in chemistry with honors. Uh, before founding Crown Laboratories in 2000, Jeff held sales and marketing development positions at Stiefel Laboratories and Herald Pharmaceuticals. Uh, Jeff owned a consulting firm providing marketing and business development management advice for email, uh, small to medium uh, pharmaceutical companies, and he recently was inducted into the Science Hill Sports Hall of Fame. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about this uh, Science Hill Sports of, uh, Hall of Fame uh, honoree. You know, I didn't attend high school there. I uh, was a graduate of Columbus High School in Waterloo, Iowa, but uh, philanthropic efforts. So I guess if you give enough money, <laughs> you uh, don't have to be a good athlete. As the world turns, right? As the world turns. <laughs> but I did uh, uh, gift them three great athletes as my children. So they were all uh, exceptional uh, athletes. And so maybe that was part of it as well. Right. And doesn't your son, uh, he's going to play like, not pro baseball, but like um, some sort of... Well, he'll be a senior this year at Science Hill and on the baseball program. And then uh, my middle child uh, played quarterback on the football team and played on the basketball team and went on to Cornell University, played football there, and, and oh, okay. now out in the real world. I, I thought some reason your son was going to go to some sort of minor league... He is, uh, um, yeah, in uh, September 10th, he's going to be playing with the uh, Kansas City Royals scout team, so he'll be doing that. I think yes, that's pretty cool. That, that is I cool. can care less about sports, frankly, but I still think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun, <laughs> for sure. So as I'm trying to start our podcast, I wanted to show, I wanted to show one of my uh, puzzles that I uh, really love out of my collection, and this one is a Karakuri, I think I'm pronouncing that right, it's from Japan. It's actually made 100% from wood, and this is a die, which I'm not going to solve it here, but it's got a very interesting solution uh, that's very simple once you know it, but uh, if you don't, it takes forever to figure out. So anyway, that's the one for today. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is the uh, topic of what does it take to bring topical products to the market? And the reason I chose this is because I come across a lot of people that have a lot of ideas of what to do when it comes to topical uh, uh, therapy or skincare or whatnot, but I don't think they really grasp that it's not as easy as just throwing something in a pot and then putting it on the market. And there's kind, there's kind of uh, examples after examples of people that have tried to do that and been very uh, unsuccessful. I'm not sure if uh, either of you have any examples, but I have one that's an influencer. Uh, I'm not going to say her name because I don't really want to cause anybody grief, but she's a, a YouTube influencer and 
Uh, she was not from the skincare world. Her, her YouTube channel is not skincare related. But she decided because she had a few million followers, she had the uh, expertise to do a skincare line. And she joined up with this uh, kind of uh, small mom and pop shop out of New York. And I believe it's New York or maybe it's L.A. But, uh, and they just cooked up in their little room a little batch of skincare and just tried to settle on the market and started burning people's faces. And uh, I, they shut down pretty quickly after that. But that's the type of thing where people uh, don't really appreciate that there's a lot of science that goes into even the most mundane skincare or mundane topicals. And so, I, Brian, do you have any... Well, as a toxicologist and being responsible for product safety for a number of companies, I certainly see that as far as in the testing that's required to make sure the product goes out and to test it on uh, or somebody use it on themselves, that's one person. Now they're going to send the products out to tens of hundreds to thousands of individuals. And so each individual is a little bit different, may react that uh, they're not aware of. And so that's why you need to do a, a good amount of testing to show that the product is going to be safe. For the majority, um, for the majority of, of individuals. Right. You can't guarantee everything's going to be safe for right. everybody because everybody's genetically different. There are diseases that make what normally people can tolerate un not tolerable or right. uh, intolerable. What's the word? Uh, but anyway, um, so Jeff, how about you? Did, is there anything that you've come across in your many years of this? Yeah. Look, Thomas, if I had a dollar for every <laughs> call I got about somebody <laughs> wanting to start a skincare line and asking me, um, can I help them? I probably wouldn't be sitting in this chair right now. I'd mm -hmm. be able to retire. But, you know, the, the biggest issue that most people don't understand, and it goes from, I've had calls from celebrities, I've had calls from people who are, you know, just hourly workers that think that they can start their own sunscreen product mm -hmm. um, to people that, that want to get into aesthetics. They don't understand that everything at every level when skin care is regulated by the FDA. And whenever you talk about a government agency <laughs> overseeing something, you uh, talk about significant investment. And, right. and then we'll talk about the, the path to bringing something to market, and then they'll uh, inevitably say, yeah, and, and I want to start with like 48 pieces of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, right, yeah, and, and you're, you know, manufacturing in a 200,000 square foot facility yeah. that's, you know, 5,000 liters of product and they're going to sell a hundred bottles a year and they want me to do that work. Right. And they, they want it cheap too, right? They and, want it. Yeah. Yeah. And cheap. so I don't think people realize, you know, when you, they have what's called an MOQ or a minimum order quantity, most, most uh, manufacturers, it's like in the 10,000s where they'll say, yes, we'll give it to you for, you know, two bucks a bottle, but you have to order 10,000. And it's not like you can say, well, I'll pay you five bucks if you give me 50. No, there's a certain limit where it doesn't make money for a manufacturer at that small because it's all the development costs that go into it, all of the, the, the labor and getting people to actually just be there to make it. At a certain point, it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, and look, the, the medical practice of having your own brand is, is very um, in vogue now. And, and doctors want to say, this is my curated line. And mm -hmm. I sat in my... Uh, lab and I formulated these products. Um, the reality is they they just don't have typically the volume to be able to have a, a curated line. They go to a manufacturer where they're able to white label you know products that are already formulated mm -hmm. that aren't differentiated from the practice. Well, you might add one there. or two things, you know. Well, even there yeah. causes of cost, right? Mm -hmm. So as you know, every time you change a package or you add you an ingredient, it. you start over from scratch. Mm -hmm. It's not like you build off. Uh, off a platform. So, you know, it's, it's something that the average person doesn't understand. 
and it goes into why things um, are more expensive, the more um, technology that goes into it, the more research that goes into it. There's a cost to all that, and, and uh, not everything can be, um, you know, the Walmart Equate brand in terms of pricing. That's right. And what you're talking about with white labeling, there are companies that's all they do. There's companies that they just wait for people to come to them and say, I want, they go out and actually solicit people to say, do you want your own brand? What was the company that was doing all the doctor brands for a while? Topics. Mm-hmm. It was Topics, yeah. and there was yeah. also like something MD or something. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there are companies that do that specifically. That's their business model is they get high volumes be- in, their, in their manufacturing because they just go out and say, do you want your own lines? And there's only so many combinations. I'm, if you start looking, there's this kind of trend to have these really long inky lists because after a while, it's hard to find new combinations. So you just got to yeah. keep on compounding it. And there's always new ingredients that people are Probably coming out with. Probably not talking about an inky list is or ingredient oh, list. Oh, yeah. Okay. An ingredient list is an inky list. And so when you look in the back, all the, the words that nobody really knows, this, it's like another language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but um, I remember when I was in organic chemistry, as an undergraduate, and I was so proud of myself because I was reading inky lists on the back of things. I was like, I know exactly what that molecule looks like and why it's named that. I can't remember most of that anymore. But um, anyway, I do want to talk uh, a bit about specifically your journey, Jeff, because uh, anybody that's spent a, any significant amount of time with Jeff will hear stories about the kind of how to make or how to build a business in topicals that will make little hairs in the back of your neck stand up, especially anybody who's actually tried to start a company or has started a company. Um, And you sit there and um, you start to respect uh, Jeff a a lot more once you hear some of the stuff that he's been through. Because any entrepreneur knows it's a roller coaster ride. But sometimes people go through such big dips that you're like, it would scare you away from ever trying to do it yourself. Now, there's some some of those stories that I think we should stay away from Mm -hmm. because we don't want to get any particular individuals or entities Absolutely. mad at us. But um, I, I would like to hear your thoughts on like, because you started uh, kind of where you were when you first started it and kind of what your mindset was and what you thought about what it took to get a topical to market versus where you are now. Because I'm sure it was slightly different coming from a sales and marketing background, not a development background and where you've come to get here. Yeah. I, I mean, the story really goes back and and... You know, at some point I'll I'll sit down and write a book, and hopefully it'll it'll um, help somebody that wants to get into this business. But it it really helps to come from a family of entrepreneurs, and that's really where it started. I mean, my, my grandfather, one of my grandfathers, both of them were entrepreneurs, but one particularly had a third grade education, and ended up being a multimillionaire by selling uh, junk, literally junk. He would go um, and and wherever I grew up in the Midwest, in Iowa, um, if there was a train that would wreck, he would go and buy from the insurance company motorcycle helmets or toys that were broken, and he would have a place to sell them, and he would turn around and make a profit there. My dad was a physical therapist that started his own practice, and, and um, at a time when physical therapists weren't allowed to really have their, their, for, uh, their own practice, and he was kind of a trendsetter there. And then for me, I was, it was always ingrained. Um, the best um, satisfaction that you'll have is, is to be your own boss. And, and um, that was something that, that was ingrained for me when, from kindergarten on or forever. So the one thing I will tell you about getting into this industry that I would not recommend anyone <laughs> ever do 
is start a manufacturing facility <laughs> without knowing anything about the FDA. So I can tell you stories about the FDA, and I will tell this one right now. I, uh, I ended up uh, partnering with a gentleman by the name of Greg Holmes, who had a small manufacturing facility in Birmingham, Alabama. And we were going to move into a 200,000-square-foot facility in Johnson City, which is now our home. And we needed to tech transfer or move that manufacturing from Birmingham to Johnson City. And I just called the FDA up and said, hey, I want to meet with you. Um, and <laughs> that was your first mistake. That was the first mistake. <laughs> but I wanted to be proactive and yeah. say, hey, look, we're going to set up shop here. And um, specifically, we had four employees. So the FDA, when I walked in, there was a group of 20 FDA <laughs> employees in, in Nashville. And uh, and they're somebody, a, a stenographer, taking notes. And all of a sudden, I went, holy, what did I get myself mm -hmm. into? Um, and I said, hey, we're going to start manufacturing uh, drugs in Johnson City. And they asked about the facility plans and the drawings. And I didn't have any of that. And so I just left there and said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and look, they, they gave me a lot of uh, leeway for a couple years. And I think our first inspection was 2004. And, and I think we had 32 483s at that time. It was, it was massive. Uh, but, you know, I started with helping Greg mix the products. I filled the products. Then when I had enough products to go and and sell. I hopped in my car. I filled the trunk up with samples of the products, and I drove around the country and and uh, and sold the products. And that's really how we launched our one of our flagship products right now, Blue Lizard Sunscreen. Um, and when we did that, uh, we were the very first zinc oxide uh, product in the U.S. This was back in the late 1990s, and there were other kind of niche products out there, but we were really the first one to bring zinc oxide into the forefront. Now there's you know a lot of products out there like that, um, but we just didn't know what we didn't know, so we weren't afraid of what we were about to face. But in retrospect, I constantly think, how the heck did we do that? Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about Blue Lizard, though, because Blue Lizard uh, is not uh, the crown portfolio now is much bigger than Blue Lizard because there's been a lot of acquisitions and mergers and such. But it's still one of the main brands. Uh, it's a it's a portfolio of sunscreen products. Uh, we have sticks, we have sprays, we have lotions. Uh, I think there's even plans in the future to do other type of, uh, of, of what do you call them? Carriers, not carriers, uh, forms, I guess. Delivery vehicles. Delivery vehicles. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about where did it start? Like, did you acquire a formula? Did you acquire just the brand? Or what, did, what did you acquire? And then where did you go from there? Yeah, so I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Peter Moore, who was a very young um, son of a, of a very successful pharmaceutical uh, tycoon in Australia. And I think his dad... Um, got tired of him just living off the payroll and said, Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a sunscreen formula. Go start a product. And this was in 1995. And um, a dermatologist who was a very dear friend of mine, Mark Rubin, who's based in Los Angeles, was over in Sydney, Australia, for the World Congress of Dermatology and came back and said, Jeff, I found an entrepreneur that wants to enter the U.S. market has no idea how to enter the market, and I thought you guys would be a, a perfect match. And he happened to have a formula um, based off Australian standards, very high quality, manufactured in a, in a CGMP 
high quality um, facility in, in Australia. And I just saw a great opportunity to really upgrade uh, the sun protection in the, in the U.S. And we were really um, at the forefront of, of understanding uh, how impactful UV radiation is on the skin. Mm-hmm. And, and there wasn't really great protection out there. So that partnership started. We um, brought it to the U.S. in 1998. And, um, you know, we, we went out and looked at two business models with the product. Uh, and now we're getting more onto the business side instead of the science side. But one uh, aspect was to sell it directly through dermatology offices. And mm-hmm. we did that in the U.S. mainland. And then in Hawaii, I took it and put it in all the long stores and went with the model of sampling dermatologists and having them recommend it. And interestingly, both those models did very, very well. Um, and we stayed with the physician dispense model because that was the least expensive way to, to enter the market um, because you didn't have the, the upfront cost of being in every CVS or Walgreens. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually we got enough scale where we could move from just physician dispensed into retail uh, locations. And of course, as you become more available to the retailers or through retailers, the dermatologists aren't as interested in selling the product, they're happy mm-hmm. to recommend it. So it was a real evolution, it was a real learning experience, but my 10 plus years at Stiefel kind of learning the basics of dermatology and, and uh, Werner Stiefel and Charlie Stiefel and that family built a, an amazing company that they eventually sold off to GSK. But they really taught me a lot about manufacturing, about product development, about sales, about marketing, about global expansion. They were what I aspired to start when Crown was uh, kind of a, a memory in my mind or a thought in my mind. Yeah, just a brainchild that yeah. was not yet a, in existence. Yeah, and uh, you know that's one of the things that makes me relate to you because I was in the same place at one point in my life. Uh, you know, we don't need to get into that story, but um, you know, really, anybody that has done that, you know, taken something from just a thought in their head and actually made it into something, uh, I admire. Um, even if it's not successful, you still took the risk, and not everybody can be successful, right? They say what ninety percent of startups fail i think more yeah and so it, it's 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 admirable anybody that and they always say in the uh, startup kind of uh, arena that you don't be afraid to fail but just fail fast right because you don't want to spend a long time drawing it out where you're not making any money you're going into debt and you want to make sure if it's a valid idea it's successful and if it's not you get out of there and start something else you're, yeah. ab- you're absolutely right. And, and hanging in, uh, I think, all our offices, I'm not sure in the Dallas office, whether it's there, is a quote from Theodore Roosevelt about the man in the arena. Yeah. And, uh, you know, never be the timid soul that uh, never takes the risk. And, and it's, a, it's an admiration for those that take the risk, whether they are successful or fail, at least they are, are not the timid soul that uh, stays in the background. So, you know, I, I admire any entrepreneur. Now, some don't have business plans in place, and I don't, I don't uh, you know, think that they're prepared to do that. Right. But, but at some point, you got to jump off the diving board and get into the water. Yeah, and not everybody. It, it, there is a bit of a learning curve to being an entrepreneur, too, and there's stuff that you wouldn't do again if you were to do it over again. But the fact is, if you are successful, regardless of whether you made mistakes at the beginning, I'm not sure you would do it over again, you know, differently, because you were successful ultimately. And 
Right now, I would say that uh, Crown is in a place of a really good success. Now we want to be more successful, but you know, you can define success many different ways. But anyway, let's talk, let's get back to the blue lizard really quick. You, you talked about the risk taking, you know, for business purposes, mm -hmm. but when it comes to actual, the science of making uh, a topical like blue lizard, there are some risks you can take and there are some risks, risks you really shouldn't take. And are there any that pop to your interior? There's some that come into my head just from my experience. But what about yours? Well, look, it, first and foremost, you don't want to um, skirt CGMP and, and, you know, good manufacturing practices. You don't want to um, skirt doing the right stability, doing the right testing. All those things are a must-have. You absolutely have to do that. Um, there is a white and lily-white and dark black and you want to try to live in the gray area because the great thing that the fda does is says go out and manufacture we're not going to tell you how to do it but when we walk in we'll tell you what you're doing wrong <laughs> and and that is a muddy water to be in um but but look you have to start with a great um product in terms of formulation stability efficacy don't shrink you know shrimp on good raw ingredients, good mm -hmm. materials. Um, you have to think about packaging and how the consumer is going to use it. There's so much that goes into developing this product that people don't think about. And the cost, every step of the way, there's, a, there's an associated cost with that. And most people don't have, for example, to, to do one formula in the sunscreen market just from a development process along with the testing you're talking about a quarter of a million dollars. That's right. I don't think people realize that sunscreens are some of the hardest, and we did have a whole episode yeah. on SPF, but sunscreens are some of the hardest things to, to, to formulate correctly. Like, cause it's not just about, does it work? It's also about, do people want to use it? Right. Is it going to cause somebody to look like they're a ghost or like a Smurf? Um, you know, there's, then there's the whole, the raw ingredients thing that you talked about. And by the way, I want to let all the listeners know that we, after we listen to the podcast back again, we realize there's some words we say that are the wrong words. Or, and, and so we'll, we'll, we try to like, uh, you know, make up for it later in the podcast. I said, I've said a couple words where I listen back. I'm like, that is the wrong word. I'm so embarrassed, but I, I hope people don't really fault me for off the top of my head. We don't script this, you know? And so you said we don't shrimp on, <laughs> you meant skimp probably. Yeah, probably. But, uh, you know, uh, well, shrimp is a nice uh, appetizer. Shrimps are delicious. Uh, yes. Shrimp. Um, but uh, what I would say is that is an important thing, too, because people don't realize that the company gets in trouble if they get an ingredient that has a high degree of impurities because that can be tested for. There could be, you know, lawsuits that can happen if somebody goes out and is just a uh, opportunists and just is testing. And people do this. They'll go out, they'll test all these sunscreens, try to find one that, you know, may have a bad batch or something, and then they go after them and get money from them. Yeah, sunscreens have the biggest bullseye on their back. And, and look, it, there are a lot of what I call ambulance-chasing lawyers out there, especially they all live in California, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> with Proposition 65 and, and label claims. And there's a lot, of, um, a lot of scrutiny right now around coral safe, around mm -hmm. mineral-based, mineral sunscreens. You know, what does, what does that mean? Um, the consumer is, is relatively unsophisticated, so it's, uh, it's really up to us to, um, to educating that consumer, which is a heavy burden because people walk the aisle 
and you have price points in sun in sun care from four or five dollars all the way up to thirty or forty dollars all of them are either an SPF 30, SPF 50, so that's a not, a, not really a differentiator. Um, so you have to go another layer or another layer um, deeper to really understand what the best product is. Um, but back to you know the, the raw materials, what other people don't understand and where the costs come in on any product that you put out there is we will buy from very reputable uh, manufacturers of, of pharmaceutical ingredients and excipients, which are the kind of the building blocks that deliver the, the therapeutic um, ingredient in the product. Um, and they'll come into our facility, but that doesn't stop there. They'll come with what they call as a, a certificate of compliance or a C of A, a certificate of acceptance, but we can't trust that. So we have to go out and retest all mm-hmm. those ingredients. And so if you have, like Blue Lizard, 22, 23, 24 ingredients, every one of those, every lot that comes in, we have to prove that that is what it is at the potency of right. what it is. All that layers in costs. Right, and because it's considered an OTC monograph, so the government looks at it as a drug. That's correct. And so you have to prove what you have in there is what you're supposed to have in there. We actually have a whole analytical lab that's all they do is they just test ingredients and and make sure that everything's the right within the right specs of everything that we're supposed to be doing. So I don't, I really hope that people can understand that it takes a lot of people just to make one product. You know, it goes through a lot of hands, and that's just a formulation. And then there's a whole other world of marketing and labels and all that stuff. And so, so we, uh, you know, I don't want to get it. we we're we're going to do 30 minute uh, uh, chunks for this episode. So this will be t- part one of two. So I want to really put a pause on it for for now, and I want to get into kind of something with a little more levity. This is something that I think uh, Angela and Jose came up with, which is kind of lightning round questions, Uh-oh. where you just kind of quickly give me an answer, kind of top of your head type of thing. And um, I did not look at these ahead of time, so <laughs> if they're silly, <laughs> I apologize. But that's the idea, to bring some levity, I guess. All right, so number one, what's your favorite junk food? Oh, wow. Um, that's evolved over time. But cookies, I would say. Any cookies specific and, brand? It, well, um, uh, chocolate chip is always the go-to. You know, a little warm chocolate chip with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on it would be good. <laughs> okay, well, now we know what to get you. All right, cake or pie? Uh, pie. What kind of pie? Uh, apple. All right. Yeah. Say good day, mate, in an Australian accent. Good day, mate. That's not an Australian accent. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's been uh, years since I've been in Sydney. All right, uh, Brian, you do it. Oh, I'm not even attempt. Uh, Anybody in the peanut gallery? <laughs> All right, I'll do it. Good day, mate. Ah, now that's good. Very good. Yeah. Somebody's been practicing it. There I didn't go. even know. All right. <laughs> Favorite season of the year? Oh gosh, fall. Okay. Say a word in Spanish. Uh, well, I can say a lot of words in, in Spanish, but como esta? That's two words. I know. Right. <laughs> Bien? Bien, yes. I, I don't speak Spanish. I should. I'm half Spanish. But uh, anyway, that is it. I think that's where we're going to end it. And then we'll go to part two in a bit. So thank you for your eyes and ears. I hope you learned something. And uh, just really quickly, if you'd like to follow us or ask us any questions, you can follow us at crownlaboratories.com. Or you can find us on social media. I'm at dr.t.hitchcock. That's dr.t.hitchcock. And you can find uh, Mr. Jeff Bedard at uh, Instagram at jab584 or LinkedIn at Jeff Bedard. Uh, So from the rest of Crown, thank you for watching. We'll see you next time. 